This is our second week in the book of Revelation, and I, I honestly could not be more excited. I feel like the world situation <laughs> is is ripe for it. I'm not the only uh, person, pastor that I've, that I've heard of that's decided on this book, and that's for a reason. And there's just such a freakishly misguided interpretation of it in this part of the world. So I'm excited not to put things right because nobody's got the book all right because it's, it's rough. It's tough. It's tough. But it's a beautiful book. It's a Christ-centered book. It's a hopeful book. And most people around here anyway hear the word revelation and run for the hills. So uh, we are in the, the second the second week, like I said, and I just dealt with the first three words, uh, Apocalypsis Yesu Christu, uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the very opening in the sermon last week and in really the first three verses a little bit more expansively. But so we're in. We're in uh, one Revelation one four through eight, and after this, there's a there's a chapter closed, verses nine through twenty of Revelation one, really take up the rest of the chapter and in a big way. It, Jesus is large on the scene. He appears to John. It's glorious. John hits the deck like a dead man when he sees the risen Christ, and it's a beautiful passage. Um, that's next week. So in the middle here between the opening and that overwhelming passage uh, and glorious passage, we've got these few verses here and they kind of get lost sometimes, a bit of a bridge. What's John doing? <clears throat> well, he's doing a lot, actually. When you home in on the verses, um, Graham Goldsworthy says this about, he says, in the space of five short verses, verses four through eight, John has summed up the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the person of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, and the doctrine of the end things. So, they're unassuming verses. Of course, they're the very breath of God. They're perfect and true and powerful, um, but they can get skipped over. But actually, John's doing a whole lot, and you see that as you start to really pay attention to him. Um, look, John, I actually need to get the passage out here. I've got the sermon notes out, but I don't have the actual passage out, which is a, a no-no. Um, it starts off by saying, John, so there's an intro, and then in the ESV, the uh, non-inspired title is Greeting to the Seven Churches. So John literally starts out by saying, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So he's just told us that this book, this whole book is going to be a revealing of Jesus, and as we talked about last week, a revealing from Jesus. It's about Jesus, and it's a message from Jesus through an angel to John to the churches. First, the seven churches in Turkey, and then through those churches to us. And that's what John says here. It's, he's writing to these churches this thing that Jesus has shown him that he needs to show us. And that's what Revelation is. Take a step back before we home in on this text. Um, Revelation is a picture. It's this weird inspired, apocalyptic, and I don't use that word in a sort of apocalypse now, sort of post-apocalyptic way, like global meltdown kind of way. I mean it in ancient Near Eastern literature genre way. This is apocalyptic genre. It's highly symbolic. It's creating an atmosphere for us, and the atmosphere is pervaded by all sorts of things, but it's, it's, uh, it's filled out and sustained by Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, who is crucified for us, and John puts that front and center in these verses, and he says, grace to you, he's talking to the churches, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and 
that those words we they're very epistolary epistolary right they're very letter like i mean paul says grace and peace all the time to the churches and so we can skip over them but again not a word is wasted john means what he says and the fact is that grace is favor that's given to us not through our own merit uh, but through the merit of somebody else and through the kindness of somebody else and john is saying hey church you have that Hey, sinners that, that God dearly loves and gave his son for, you have his favor. One for you by Christ, not by your own efforts. And then he says, and peace. And peace is the opposite of war, right? War is what we deserve. War with God because of our, our evil and our rebellion. Peace, war is what Jesus took, and he gave us the peace that he has with the Father. And he's brought us back into a peaceful relationship. A ceasing of hostilities. Not, and, and the word doesn't just mean ceasing. Not like we say, peace, man, chill out. Just chill. Just don't do anything. No, that's not. The biblical peace is, this is Paul. John is so Hebraic. He's so Old Testament. He, he pulls from the Old Testament between 400 and 1,000 times. Um, they're either explicit or, or, or more uh, obscure and veiled uh, references to, to the Old Testament in these 22 chapters. So, He's really drawing on the peace of the Old Testament scriptures here, and that's a deep, <clears throat> that's a deep wholeness and fullness of life that Jesus brings us into. So, um, they're small words, but they were dearly bought by Jesus, and that's really what um, John hangs. He goes there. He goes there for us explicitly in verse five. But before that, he gives this amazingly trinitarian, and the book is so trinitarian, and this passage is so trinitarian. But he says, "Grace and peace, what from Him who is." So in other words, where does this grace and peace come from? John tells us explicitly just what I just said. Grace and peace from, grace grace to you and peace from him. It's from God, from the God who is, from him who is and who was and who is to come. So notice how that's triple, it's Trinitarian. Um, and he doesn't say, you would expect him to say the God who was and is and is to come. So past, present, future. He doesn't, he starts with the present, moves to the past and finishes with the future. And he says, uh, why does he do that, right? He, because God, he's drawing on Exodus. He's going back to Exodus 3.14. And when, when God reveals himself to Moses and he says, Moses, Moses says, who are you? And who should I tell the people that you are when I go? And says, let my people go. And he says, I am. God is eternally present. He is always with his people. And he, uh, he will never leave us. And he is imminent. And he is here. He is the God who is. Um, he's not a has-been. He's not someone who's just going to be in the future. No. He's not just a God who's coming one day. He's the God who is. He's the God who gives all things their definition. All, all, all that is comes from the I am. So that's, I think, a few of the reasons that he starts with from him who is and who was. He always has been, right? And who is to come. Not just who will be, but he's coming. And that's ever present with John. He is the God who is returning. And we need to live in light of that. And John will never let us forget that. Paul is always mentioning the uh, the return of Christ and, and living, wanting, wanting the church to live in light of the fact that he's coming again to judge, to, to uh, destroy his enemies and to bring his own to him and to finish what he started, to remake all creation and to, to be our king with us on this earth forever. Uh, and, and John is doing the same thing here. He's reminding us that God is the God who's coming. 
he's reigning now and he's coming. Those are two huge points that John makes throughout this book is God in Christ has the victory. He won it at the cross. Uh, he showed us that at the resurrection. He's reigning now and he's soon to return. The next big thing in biblical history is the return of, of the king. That's the next big thing. That's why these are called the last days. So Christ is reigning the millennium. And I'm going to get to this when we get to that text in Revelation 20. But the millennium's now. The reign of Christ is now. From heaven, on earth, through his body, largely through our persecution, his kingdom is going forth as his gospel is proclaimed and people trust in him. And evil is pushed back. And but continues to grow alongside the good, right? The wheat and the tares until Christ returns. And so his reign is now and uh, the last days are now. They're not sometime in the future. Revelation is it is about the future. Of course, Christ hasn't returned yet. It's about the the future return of Christ when he's going to not just inaugurate the last not just inaugurate the um, the new creation, which he has done and not just inaugurate his kingdom, which he has done, but to consummate it, to bring it in its fullness, to finish it. Um, that's all future, but most of the book is about what had already happened and what was happening in John's day and what continues to happen in ours. So, um, so John is talking to the seven churches and, and he's, and then he, and then he mentions, um, the seven spirits who are before the throne. And so this is a way in which we get even more Trinitarian. So, so a couple things, the seven spirits, um, there, God doesn't have seven, so seven churches first, excuse me, in, in verse four. Um, John is writing to seven literal churches in then Asia Minor, now Turkey. And it's a circular letter, and it was probably passed around and read to each of them. But as the seven churches, seven is one of the symbols, the num- numbers are symbols that John uses. Um, and so through the literalness of the seven churches, he's speaking to all the churches, um, throughout history to the present day and, and until Christ returns. So this let this letter is, is, is for all the churches and, um, is for the, uh, the invisible church, right? The, the, the saints of a living God believers who are his body. Um, and seven is a number. It's the divine, it's a divine number. It's a number of fullness and completion. So God made all things in Genesis one and seven days, six days, but plus one, the seventh day was the day of completion or fullness. Um, and so the seven churches represent the fullness of the churches. And then the, to the seven spirits. Um, so John moves from saying grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And then he moves on and, and from the seven spirits. So the, the was and is and was and is to come is Trinitarian in and of itself. But then he continues in his Trinitarianism because uh, he's really talking about the father there. And then he moves on and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, you have to let both the context and your theology help you understand and the reading intelligently that the genre is apocalyptic. There aren't, God doesn't have seven spirits. Our theology tells us that he, he is a spirit. He is the spirit. God has one spirit. And so why, why seven spirits? Talking about angels? No, this is in a Trinitarian context. He's talking about the spirit of God who has seven, what full power. He has full presence in the world. He goes out throughout the world and accomplishes his will perfectly through the victory of the Lamb. And he does it through his church. So God, so John moves from the one who 
is and was and is to come to the seven spirits who are before the throne. And then he moves in verse five to Jesus and from Jesus. So you notice how Trinitarian that is. Father, Spirit, Son, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And notice how Jesus is put right alongside Father and Spirit. There's a high, high Christology in this book. Jesus Christ is presented by John. We'll see this explicitly in the next passage that closes chapter one, where John meets Jesus and he just falls. Um, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. The faithful witness. Jesus Christ perfectly, perfectly in his life and death, um, represented the character of God to us. As God, as the word of God, he perfectly articulated to us, here's what God's like. He's full of compassion. He speaks the truth always. There's no dissimulation or deception in him. He associates with the lowly. He died for us on a cross. That's, that's the full expression of his love, and that's the heart of God. The outstretched arms of Jesus Christ, whether touching a leper, raising a widow's son from the dead, or having nails driven through him by his choice, and having the wrath of God by his choice poured out on him as a substitute for us, perfectly shows us the heart of God the Father. It's the Father, after all, Galatians 4, who sent forth his Son in the fullness of time to save us. Romans 3, is it 25? He put him, God put forward Jesus. He put him forward. It wasn't an accident. He put him forward um, to demonstrate his righteousness, to show this is what is required for sin, to make sinners right with me. The payment has to be made. I'm not just going to let sin go. God's hatred of sin is shown to us on the cross. And it's shown to us in his wrath. And we see a lot of that here. We see the wrath of the Lamb all over this book. And when you, and we'll return to this. We'll probably do a whole sermon on the wrath of the Lamb. But when you think of the wrath of God, don't think of, we tend to go mean God. Okay, wrath, wrath of God, mean God. No, wrath of God, loving God. The wrath of God is his love of creation, and he sees evil and sin destroying his creation and destroying us and, and holding us prisoner to Satan, to ourselves, to death. And he hates that because he loves us, and because he loves us, he will not let sin go. It must be punished. And so the cross, God, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, as a wrath bearer in our place. To demonstrate his own righteousness. This is what it took. And to justify us. To make us right. Before him. So so Jesus is a faithful witness. He's the only faithful witness that's ever walked the earth. Everybody else has failed. But he did not fail. He's a faithful witness. He's the faithful witness. He's the firstborn of the dead. Not only a couple things here. Not only does Jesus have the rights of the firstborn. In this ancient Near Eastern culture. The, primo, the rights of primogeniture. The firstborn got got all essentially the kit and caboodle of the inheritance to keep the family together, to keep the land together. He was responsible for the family as the head once the father passed that mantle on. Jesus is the only son of God. He's it. John 3.16. Um, he's the only son. That that verse should not be translated the only begotten. It should. It's pretty much a consensus now among scholars. It should be translated the only son. 
He's the only son from the Father. Um, the Father has one son who's perfectly loved and has been forever. There, there's no beginning to how much to his to the way that the Father has loved the Son, and the way that the Father has received that love and given it back to his to his Father. And um, he has all the rights of the firstborn, and he and he brings us into those rights. He shares his inheritance with us when we trust in him. So he's the firstborn from the dead, but also I think there's something of, and we see this in other places in Paul's letters, in Colossians 1, for instance, but there's something of the, he's the, he's the first that was, that, he, that was born, as it were, into a new creation that's free from sin and death. And that started with his resurrection. He's, he was born literally out of the dead. He, re, he rose from the dead and from everything that held him down after being a sin substitute for us into a new kind of humanity and a new kind of life and a new kind of creation that is untouched by all that Adam brought on us and into us. And in that way, he is the firstborn of a new order. And that's what John is reminding us of here, that glorious truth. He's the firstborn of the dead, and he's the ruler of kings on earth. He's the king over death. He's the king over kings. He's the king over all potentates and rulers uh, on earth. Presidents, he he appoints them. He deposes them. They will all bow to him, even those that crucified him. And John goes, goes ahead and says that later. We forget that a lot of times. We think of Jesus as the savior, but he's the king. He's actually going to rule on planet earth when he comes again. As a man, he's still a man. He will never cease to be a man. He has forever identified with humanity. And as a human, he represents us and intercedes for us. He couldn't do it if he weren't a man. But as a man, kind for kind, he's like he's like unto us. He is a true human, fully God. And as a true human, he will he will reign, the God man. We will we will hold him. He will wipe away the tears from our eyes. This is the picture. He will reign on earth and he will get rid of all evil in us and outside of us. No locks on doors, total justice, total prosperity, total shalom, total peace, um, total thriving in every single possible way in this new creation. It's not going to be ethereal. It's going to be earthy. It's going to be here. Heaven's coming down and he's coming. He's bringing heaven down. The first time he left heaven, the second time he brings heaven down, right, to finish what he started, to consummate what he inaugurated. So this is the picture that John is warming up. He's like a pitcher here, warming up in his pitch. Um, and boy, you could see that Graham Goldsworthy was right. He's, he's really packing in a lot of, of beauty here. Um, so he finishes with this amazingly Trinitarian sort of introduction, grace and peace to you from the one who is and was and is to come from the Spirit, from the Son. And then he goes on, to him who loves us and has freed us. This is one of the most beautiful verses. I could close here. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What a beautiful verse. He loves us. You know, sometimes you can think of the the cross, God forbid it, but as a transaction. Like he paid, he paid for us on the cross and maybe he did it begrudgingly. No. Why did he do it? He did it out of love. And let me show you this. Let me press this in. Get, get, get grammatical, glorious grammar to, um, to him who loves us. Literally, that's a participle. 
to him who is loving us. His, his love of you is present. It's, it's right now. He is currently in the business of actively loving you. To him who is loving us and has freed us. I love how John juxtaposes that. It's, that's past tense. Okay? And it's actually a past tense participle. So he's loving us and the one who ha- he is having and, ha- and having freed us. It took, the, what does the participle do there? I'm not sure, but I think it emphasizes the fact that it was a once and for all thing, but it took time, it took effort, it was Herculean. In his life and in his excruciating, drawn out death and torture and death, Jesus did everything necessary to free us. But it's finished. There was a point in which he said, it is finished. And then he died and then he rose to show that it was finished and to show that his payment for us was accepted by the Father. That's sufficient. Having freed us, it's in the past. We're free. The shackles are off. And we get to walk increasingly into that freedom. That's called sanctification. Purchased fully for us by Jesus in the past because he is currently loving us. Uh, but we get to do, we get to walk in that more and more and more by faith until we see him face to face. That's called sanctification. And then seeing him face to face, we will be perfected. We will become as he is. That's how powerful this vision of the person of Jesus will be. It will utterly change us. And that's really what, ha- what, how, what sanctification is. It's looking, looking to him, looking to him, gazing on him, gazing on him, gazing on his beauty, gazing on his mercy, gazing on his compassion, gazing on his justice and his truth and his holiness. As we go to the scriptures, as we pray, as we cry out to him, as we spend time with other believers and among his body, as we preach, as we tell other people about him, as we suffer for the faith, we are gazing on Jesus and that's how we grow. And then when we see him face to face, the process is finished. Amazing. That's how powerful a vision of Jesus is. And that's what we see over and over again in this book, this vision of the risen Christ. So John says to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by, by his blood. In the Greek, it says, um, see if I can remember, it says um, the, the construction of the Greek is to him who um, loves us and um, uh, and has freed. Um, let's see. Uh, and has freed us from sins, ours, by blood, his. So you see how he's freed us from sins, ours, by blood, his. It's even more emphatic, that parallelism. Um, the cost of our freedom was his life. His blood is what is what set us free. That, it, it emphasizes the exchange too, right? Blood his for freedom ours. Amazing. Um, but John goes on, and, and through that, what? He's made us a kingdom. So not just, hey, you're free to live how you want. No, he's made us a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. Um, it, John doesn't say here, so he's made us kings and priests. That's an Exodus 19.6 reference. So what, was, what, was, what God wanted to do with Israel, he has done now through the true Israel, Jesus, uh, in his church. He's only ever had one people. He's only ever had one plan to make them a kingdom of priests, um, and he has accomplished that now through Jesus Christ. The thing about a kingdom, you know, a kingdom's kingdom citizens reign. Um, 
and and but he, he doesn't say to make them kings and priests. He says to make us a kingdom. He has made us a kingdom, excuse me, comma, priests to his God. In other words, how you can almost put a colon there. He has made us a kingdom, colon, priests to his God. Remember, he's God, but he's also the son and he's also a man. And as a man, God, the father is his God. Um, and what is he doing here? He's saying, look, how are we a kingdom? By being priests. And what do priests do? Priests bring man to God in peace through a sacrifice. And so what we do is we we exercise our kingship and in our in our kingdom citizenry. And we show that we are citizens of the kingdom of Jesus Christ um, by bringing people to God through the work of Jesus Christ and proclaiming that to them and saying, he has freed us by his blood. Come to him. Look on him. Gaze on him. Look on Jesus, ye sinner, and be saved. Flee from the wrath to come by hiding in him. He is enough. That is how we exercise our kingship, and that is how his kingdom grows. And then John just says, he just expostulates and says, man, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then he says, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. Um, in short, a lot of scholars, most scholars, I would say that I've read, think that this is simply, you know, he's coming with the clouds. Let me just break that down briefly. That's, again, Old Testament. Everything John does only makes sense, not in light of looking ahead to the future and trying to figure out how it squares with, you don't, you know, we don't want to do newspaper eschatology. How does this make sense in light of the future? No. Or what's happening now? No. How does this make sense in light of Old Testament language? John is writing out of the scriptures. In, in, in the Old Testament, there was only one person who wrote on the clouds, and you know who that is. God. God is the one who rides on the clouds. And it's a sign of power. When he comes on the clouds, he's coming to whoop some tail. D David also, also often invokes this image of God. He cries out to God, and God rides on a cloud, rides on a chariot to come and save him, and to defeat David's enemies, to break their teeth, etc., to smash them into into tiny bits. So God coming on the clouds is a terrifying image to those who are against God, who have not hid in Christ by faith. And it's a wonderful image to those who are being persecuted and who, that, who are gods, who are Christ's and who are being persecuted for the word of their testimony um, and for their adher adherence to Jesus. And, and, and it's their maker coming to be with them and to save them. And so um, it's, it's, John's clearly talking about Jesus as he has just been speaking about Jesus and what he's done. And he goes on to say he's coming on the clouds. And he's going to, and, and obviously he's talking about Jesus because he says he's going, even the ones who pierced him are going to see him and they're going to wail. So it's a sign of judgment for sure. I think it's also a sign of, um, there, there, there might be some repentance suggested in here. Those who, there's a time of repentance and wailing because they see we crucified him. We see that in the book of Acts. We crucified him. Uh, and, and, but now is the time of repentance and turning. It's not too late, but it will be when he returns. And so most commentators, um, so it's God, it's God almighty in the person of Jesus because he is God coming to, to do away with those who, um, who continue to resist him and oppose him and, uh, and, uh, to, um, to do away with those who, oppose him and to bring his own to himself 
And but most most commentators look at this and they say, yeah, it's it's about Jesus' second coming, and and it certainly is. But again, if you look at the Old Testament allusions, there there are two references here. One is to Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen, and one is to Zechariah twelve verse ten. And the the Zechariah twelve verse ten is clearly talking about his his return. Uh, but the Daniel one is actually talking about his not his coming down, but his going up. His ascension to the throne. And uh, the Son of Man, the Daniel 7 passage is the Son of Man, Jesus. He, he approaches the Ancient of Days, the Almighty, Uncreated God. And he, uh, he, he is seated. He takes, he, he takes all the dominion that was given, that was offered to Adam and lost by Adam. And all the power and the glory and the dominion, um, over all creation he he receives and his kingdom goes out over all the earth and he receives all the glory that God receives and so he he shares the throne with God unlike any earthly creature ever has and he takes the the dominion of Adam back so he's this perfect god man and but he the point is here that he's um in Daniel 7 which this verse has embedded in it and is a reference to he's he's going up not down so i think that John does this a lot. The time between the time uh, between the two comings of Christ is what is the time period of Revelation. Because over and over again, John 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 shows us that Jesus is not. Again, he was writing to a beleaguered church that was being persecuted for its faith. It was probably saying. It was certainly saying, "Are we on the right side? Is Jesus? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is he victorious or not? Because we're getting our butts kicked here. We're getting crucified. We're being." We're being we're torches for Nero's parties. We're being fed to the to the to the lions. And John goes, no, no, that's not the reality. The reality is this. And he pulls back the curtain and he says, let me show you a revelation from Jesus and of Jesus. He's seated on the throne. He was victorious at the cross. He beat sin, death, hell, and Satan. He's seated on the throne of power, and he's pulling the levers of the world. He appoints rulers. He deposes rulers. He's working all things to their appointed end, and he's working through our suffering and persecution, just like he worked through the cross. And so this is really this. Um, he's coming soon. He's riding on a cloud is really talking about the whole period between his ascending to the throne after his resurrection. And his session, he's seated on the throne, and that's where we are now, and he's ruling and reigning and we with him as his church. And then he's soon to return. So he's coming again. He went up. He's seated. He's coming back down. That's really, John pulls all that, I believe, into this. And he's really he's really telling us that throughout the book. Um, and that's a real encouragement to a persecuted church. And that's really where our eyes should be. That's what we should be fixated on. That's the reality, not what we see down here, man. So that's what we ought to be praying. We ought to be praying into that and have that confidence. Um and then he finishes by saying, by the words of Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was. There it is again. And who is to come, the Almighty. And again, he's clearly talking about Jesus. He's just said, all the tribes of the earth, even those who pierced him, will see him and will wail. And then he fin- and then there's no, there's no transition. He just says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. So Jesus is speaking. He's called the Lord God. And he's called the Alpha and the Omega. There's only one Alpha and Omega. Isaiah, I believe, uses this term, the first, well, he says the first and the last, and the, the, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, that's, that's the, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, by the way. So it's like saying the A to Z, 
again, it's saying him who to him who is and was and is to come. That's it's another way of saying the same thing. He's the eternal one. He always is. He's ever present. To him, a day is a, a thousand years are like a day. He's he's uncreated. His very being is such that he's necessary. He's always been. He always will be. And he's coming again. That's Jesus. And that's the one that John is about to to see and to fall before. And then Jesus has some amazing, amazing things to John. And I can't wait to get there. So um, that is the, the Trinitarian God that John presents to us. That is the Jesus that John is winding up to show us and who is reigning and who is soon to return. Um, God bless you guys.